When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Science Fiction, where we talk with amazing authors about their amazing books full of amazing ideas. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Cloud on the Horizon edition. Joining me today is Guatam Batia to discuss The Wall, his novel about a city enclosed in an impenetrable, unscalable wall that seems sky high to its inhabitants. But it's really not just a city. It's essentially a country. It's even really a whole world because the people who live inside it and whose ancestors have lived inside it for 2,000 years know of nothing else. In addition to being an author, Guatam Batia is an editor at the award-winning Strange Horizons magazine and a constitutional scholar. Hello, Guatam. I'm excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling me. The Wall is a story about the city of Sumer and a group of people called the Young Terafians who take up a cause others have taken up and failed at in the past. And that's to go beyond the Wall. Why don't we start by you describing Sumer and the wall? So Sumer is is what you'd call, uh, I think, in in classic terms, a semi-closed system. So this is a perfectly circular city that's within a, a very high wall that nobody has crossed in living memory. And so while air can pass back and forth over the wall, and there is a a limitless supply of water whose source is also unknown. Every other commodity is finite and scarce. So when it comes to food or or wood or materials for clothes, it's all scarce in limited quantities and, and has to be renewable. And so, of course, the city's social structures, economic structures, and obviously culture as well, is shaped by a world where scarcity is, is not just an ideological construct, but actually in, in physical terms is, is a very real thing. Unless I missed it, you never actually say how high the wall is or actually how big the city is. And in effect, that lack of specificity to me gives the story a kind of mythic quality, like this could be almost in any place, any time. Do you have a sense? I mean, and maybe I missed it. Do you ever describe actually those kinds of dimensions? Not uh, not directly, but there are a few implications. So it takes roughly around half the night for someone to go from the center of the city to the wall, which is the end of the city. And if you just do a rough estimate, they're around like five hours. And the fact that people walking at, at a brisk pace can normally do around four kilometers. So what you get is the radius of the city is something around 18 to 20 kilometers. And the, and the height also, you're right, is, is not specifically defined, but there are a few scenes where like low-hanging clouds 
uh, are seen around about the top of the wall. So from that, you can you can roughly figure out how high it is. So yeah, so it was a deliberate choice not to provide the exact dimensions of the city and of the wall, but to capture a few clues that would give people a, a rough sense of of how big and and how uh, how tall. Not in terms of actual figures, but through figuring out how far people can walk and and you know what it might be if you see clouds, the little hanging clouds hanging just around the top of the wall. And as you've said, there are limits on certain resources, but the experience of people actually living there is, in essence, there is enough food for them and enough water. And that seems to lead to most people feeling basically content to stay within the wall. Yeah. They at least don't seem right. They're not so interested in finding out what's beyond it, although you do introduce this concept called smara, which yeah. in the beginning is defined as a yearning to go beyond the wall. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that because the meaning of smara changes as the young Tarafians do their research. They, they try to find out more about the history of the city. There's a lot of poetry in the book, and smara seems to be very integral. It's almost a poetic feeling that people don't actually act on, it seems like. Yeah. So rather than have me attempt to, to pathetically explain it, why, why don't you talk a little bit about this idea of Smara and, and why most people seem to be content to stay within the city, but your main character, Mithila, and her friends among the young Teraphians, they, they are determined to do more than just write poetry about their yearning to leave the city. They want to breach the wall. So could you talk about about these different urges among the population? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a great question. And so, so one thing that's always surprised me is when there have been a few reviews of the book that have described the, the city of Sumer as, as a dystopia, which I, which I found a little surprising because is very actually consciously built to not be a, a dystopia. So, you know, there's there's no there's no grinding poverty. It's not that there is some kind of very visible and and wretched oppression that's keeping people down. Of course, there are class hierarchies and and there are social structures that of course is there. But at the end of the day, the resources are distributed in a way that everyone has enough for at least. Uh, a decent standard of, of life. So it's not it's not it's not a dystopia and it's not meant to be a dystopia. And that's part of the point. So one of the the ideas I wanted to actually explore in, in this book was that the rebellion is not need not only come from a situation of desperation or the kind of, of desperation that led to a French Revolution or Russian Revolution. You don't you don't need to have that kind of, of desperation to, but you still may want to rebel and actually alter things to a great degree and and of course, in, in that case, when, when you're then asked to explain why you want to, to do that, it's, it's a much harder job to, to explain why revolution is justified when people already have enough. And, and the goal that the revolution is aiming for is undefined at, at best and, and at worst could make things you know, far worse for people because nobody knows what's beyond the wall. Uh, so actually taking a great risk by going beyond the wall and, and for what? So that, that makes the conflict between those who want to go beyond the wall and those who want to stay a much harder conflict to resolve than if you had a straightforward dystopia where some people are trying to you know, rebel against a dystopia. And one thing I've always thought is that just like in life and in, in, in fiction as well, both sides and all sides should have good arguments. 
it shouldn't be a you know very a very clear binary between who's right and who's wrong and at the end of the book even the reader should at least have some doubt about which side did have the better argument so so that was the design of of the book reflects some of those those ideas of mine and of course then the next thing that you asked uh, the idea of smara it's a bit of a, a, a throwaway for indian readers because um, again not to not to give away spoilers but smara comes from pacific indian word and so so for an, an indian reader they would it, it would be like a clue that there already is exists in from the opening pages but basically what it means is at least in, in the beginning of the story as you said it's it's a yearning that comes from the knowledge that there is something beyond the wall but the fact that the language that people have a language that is itself the product of many centuries of living within a wall doesn't have the words that allow them to imagine what that might be the the world beyond the wall and just something like the word horizon is is a word that doesn't exist in the language of sumer and i've always been fascinated by how language in a certain sense not only reflects the world but also constructs it so if you don't have the word for for something it's also very difficult to to imagine what that something is and of course that relationship flows both ways so smara is kind of one of those words that they they develop to try and 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 capture something that don't have the language to really uh, describe and, and to imagine and of course then that brings to the tone set of emotions images and so on so the concept of smara is 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 one of those concepts that illustrates i think the relationship between language and the world and how uh, a bounded world would also have a, a contained and bounded kind of a language as well and what is driving mithila and her friends to take it a step further and actually find an answer rather than just sit with this yearning to see beyond but actually take an action and try to figure out how to do it and to to put up with all the challenges that people throw in their way to try to stop them. Yeah, so I think I think that one of the points to the book is that because life inside the the wall city is is not a dystopic life and nobody knows what's outside so it could, you know, it it could make things a lot worse if it's something if it's a great danger and even if it makes things a lot better the question of do you need things to be a lot better if you're already fine. So in that sense Mithila and her friends are really hard pressed to explain or to kind of really give logical reasons or or rational arguments for why they want to do it and ultimately it comes down to something that that I have always found very interesting one of the a very famous mountaineer George Mallory was asked when he wanted to try and climb Mount Everest the highest mountain in the world and and he was asked why do you want to climb Mount Everest what what are you getting from it and ultimately the only answer he could give was that because it exists because it's there uh, and i think that that is something that that really captures something very interesting about the human condition the human spirit and and ultimately often the answer is something as simple as because because the wall exists and it's there and and that's the only reason why we we want to cross it and if you break it down there is actually you can't give something you can't break that down further into logical arguments or rational arguments it's just that the wall is there and and there are some people who will never know peace until they know what's beyond it so i think i think that is what motivates them it's something that there is simply impossible to further break down into its component parts the wall is there and then they need to know what's beyond it i love that 
the people who live, it makes perfect sense, but the, the people who live within the city, of course, they don't know what a horizon is because they've never seen one. And it's such an interesting idea uh, because, of course, it's something we take for granted. I hope all our listeners take it for granted, too. I hope they, they get to see <laughs> the horizon now and then. What does it symbolize to you? Because that comes up several times that she is almost being a heretic by throwing out this this idea that people can't even imagine. You know, it's as if she's asking her fellow citizens to describe a color they've never seen before. Why did you choose that particular concept for her to embody the freedom beyond what she imagines might be a freedom beyond the wall? Yeah, I think it's very interesting you brought up the idea of, of color because I always think of that famous line from the Iliad, the, the wine dark sea, uh, you know, which has really puzzled linguists for, for so many years because whatever other color the, the sea is, it's not really the color of wine. And of course, it's a fascinating analysis of, of that in, in this book called Through the Language Glass that actually talks about how the Greeks' spectrum of color was a little different. But that, that's actually connected to a lot about how, you know, when you try to, you know, looking for words, and I mean, if you don't have the words, then you don't have the concepts, and so it's, it's really hard to imagine them. Why Horizon in, in particular? Well, so there are a few reasons. One is, one of them will be revealed in, in, in the second book, the sequel, uh, which is coming. Uh, but also because one thing that's always fascinated me about the Horizon is the idea that you're moving towards it, but as you move towards it, it keeps receding, so you never actually get there. And, and this is something that is, is, is a concept that poets have really used to beautiful effect you know, over centuries. And, and one of the inspirations for it actually comes from the Aeneid, where Aeneas is on a ship and then he talks about the shore, and the shore is always receding even as he moves towards it. So that idea of never actually getting there and the place you want to get to moves away as you move towards it, that was kind of the motivating idea. And of course, how much at all that is with a bounded world in which wherever you go, you will always end up at, at the wall and, and never beyond that. So the contrast between the two, I thought, was, was stark, and, and that's why it seemed to make sense to pick this concept as one of the structuring concepts of, of the book. I've never thought of colors as being culturally bounded, but now that you say the wine-dark sea, well, we don't generally think of it as the color of wine. It it just sounded pretty to me when I've read that, but it's an interesting point that you could actually experience color differently in a different culture. Oh, yeah. So there was this, this book is actually a fascinating analysis of that, and it talks about how on, on the Greek spectrum of color, the color of the sea and the color of wine, there was no distinction in, in how they viewed the spectrum. So, I mean, when, when we say green, blue, yellow, that's an arbitrary linguistic way of dividing up the color spectrum. There could be a different way of dividing it up and placing the distinction between colors at different points on the spectrum. Uh, that wouldn't be green, yellow, red, something else. And so in, in the Greeks' vision, there was a continuum between the color of wine and you know, what we think of as the, color, the blue-green color of the sea. You're a scholar of constitutional law, and you're also a writer of speculative fiction. And I assume you must love both fields. People don't just do those things because they have to. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your career path. Which which of those loves came first? Oh, uh, science fiction for sure. Because uh, when I was when I was like ten years old, long before I had any idea of what law is and 
and we're doing law. My my parents got me first. First they got me um, the Hobbit, uh, and then they got me Asimov's Foundation, uh, and I was I was completely lost. Uh, that was that was those two books were were enough. And uh, when I was a teenager, you know, I used to be one of those kids who was always handwriting novels, you know, in in class. Uh, I think I must have done about nine or ten really bad unfinished novels during my teenage years. So uh, the love for science fiction and fantasy and and writing science fiction and fantasy has been there since since the age of ten. So it definitely came. It came first. And you mentioned in the acknowledgments that you started the wall in some form when you were in college. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, obviously, you went on to to do other things. You you did become a, a lawyer and a scholar, and then you took the wall out of a drawer. Is that what happened? Yeah, that, that's pretty much what happened. So I'd, I'd done a first draft, and actually I'd done two or three drafts when I was in college, which was around about 2008. And there was a 10-year 10 10 year gap. In my mind, it existed. I knew it was there, but there was just too much else happening in life to give it the time that it, it deserved and needed to transform it from a very bad first draft to something that I wouldn't be ashamed of entirely when it when it would be published. So it, it took a 10-year gap, and then I was ready to come back to it, and so I just pulled it out and, and resumed work on it. Knowing that you're a constitutional scholar and, and an expert in the law, I see a lot in the book that I imagine might be based on some ideas you're familiar with in your real-life work. I mean, a lot of the story takes place in the scientific and political and religious power centers of the city where debates occur, ones that sound, as you said earlier in our conversation, where both sides, people in the discussion have good arguments on both sides. And I imagine a lot of that probably comes from your your legal training and the respect for for both sides. So I, I wonder if you could talk about concepts that are in the book, if there are any, that maybe draw a little bit from your real-world scholarship or, or thoughts you've had in your real-world experience in the legal world? Yeah, so so I think that it's basically, it's pretty much the same, you know, let's say when, when an engineer would write a science fiction novel, you know, their the competence would, would ensure that, say, a spaceship aerodynamically, you know, uh, just right to ensure that it can fly. And so so I think it's something similar in that by virtue of having trained in law, you get a sense of how legal structures underpin social, cultural, economic, and political life. And often they're just the the, the plumbing underneath. So you don't always see them, but, but they are what makes a lot of what we do on a daily basis possible and many things that we take take for granted. So, so in that sense... Uh, that that awareness kind of ensures that when you're world building, you're paying attention to what the legal structures are that would logically flow from the economic base that exists in your world. So just a, a couple of examples. In the world of Sumer, given that you have population, given that you have physically scarce area and scarce resources, there's actually an imperative to ensure that that population is 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 kept at a certain level and also there are all social hierarchies so while keeping population at a certain level you also want to maintain certain hierarchies and historically how that's often been done is through laws that that regulate marriage and inheritance so although 
this is not a central part of the novel. If the novel is not a novel about law, but there is in the backdrop how the city is maintained in a certain way is at least in good part a function of its legal structure. And so at various points there are mentions, like four-way mentions of, of what the laws are that would allow the city to survive in this way. I think that's something, again, similar to how you'd find in, in hard science fiction novels. Just like the throwaway mentions again of, of how, say, a spaceship exists, how, how those kind of things happen. So I think it's something similar. I, I am pretty conscious that there is a risk in letting your professional life determine what direction the novel takes. And in that sense, I've, I've been very careful to keep, keep those two worlds separate. So it's not a novel about law. It's not a science fiction. It's not a legal science fiction novel. It's not a science fiction novel that that is actually based in around law. But it has an awareness of the world of the role that law plays in in underpinning a particular world. Uh, and of course, there is actually. So it's actually also interesting. There is, as as you know, there is a scene, a, a pretty pivotal scene in the in the novel that involves. Uh, what is a, a courtroom scene, so to say, you know, that it involves arguments in some kind of a court. But actually, I've been very careful to ensure that that, that scene doesn't actually reflect what, I, what goes on in any recognizable modern courtroom. It's not like lawyers arguing. It's, much, it's actually much closer to you know, the classic vision of how debates would happen in, in the Greek or in the Roman forum. So it's closer to that. It's not actually drawn from actual courtroom practice. So in that sense, I've tried to keep the two worlds separate as well. So there are influences, but also I've attempted to ensure that one doesn't overwhelm the other. Yeah, I felt that, actually. I felt that it reminded me of reading Plato, where people are having these discussions about ideas back and forth and making an argument and then responding and then making an argument. And um, Yeah, yeah. So a point for you for, <laughs> for making that comprehensible and uh, evoking that so effectively. Thank you, thank you. There are a lot of competing interests in the wall, as there are in any government or country. And for instance, there is tension between those who are upholding Sumer's religion uh, those are the shortans, shortans. Yeah, shortans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's the select. Those are the scientists, and then yeah. there's the council, and they rule the government. And it seems, in a way, although they have very different takes on why, for instance, Mithila shouldn't leave, why it's not appropriate. Generally, most of them, at least uh, officially, have the, take this stand that you don't want to breach the wall and you can't. Yeah, They are very different parties, but they have a kind of equilibrium. They all seem to share power. At least that's the appearance. And I wonder, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about does one faction maybe have more influence or does their power shift as needed? Uh, that's that's actually a, a very good question, and it anticipates a lot of the lot of the conflict that will happen in book two. But you're right in that in in book one there is what I'd say like a, an unstable equilibrium between what you've correctly identified as, as as the three major forces. One is the the basically what is the ruling class, the the council, which is broadly secular in that it's not a theocracy, it's not a religious ruling class, it is a secular ruling class. And then, and then you have, and I think it's also both the Shurtans or the religious groups and the select or the scientists, again, take their form based on the underlying world that exists. So, you know, if, if you have this world that exists uh, within this wall for centuries, 
and it's very clear that the wall has been built. It, it's not, it's Kandakar in nature. It's a perfectly spherical wall that's been built. Uh, and within the wall, in the city, there are these, these exact, uh, the resources exist in the exact proportion to allow people to survive. And, and as scientists tell Mathila in, in midway through the book, if any of the resources, whether it's the wood or the, the crop or renewable coal resources from the bogs or swamps and so on, if any of them were not present or present in less quantity than they are, uh, the city would not be able to survive. So again, it's very clear that this is, this is effectively a perfect design, right? And, and so it's clear that it's been built. And then that automatically gives rise to both religious explanations for it and attempts to find the scientific rationale. And, and that gives the Shurtans and the Select their very specific form. And the one group wants to locate the origins of the city in myths and in, in religion, whereas one group is looking for what they think are explanations that don't need to invoke anything of the kind. And, of course, uh, the first book doesn't resolve that kind of conflict. Uh, so it's not yet clear who's right and, and who's wrong. And as you said, uh, there is a broader atmosphere of you know, a fantasy city as well. So, so it's by no means guaranteed that the scientists are, are right in, in their you know, almost messianic quest for finding a rational explanation for everything. And it's, no, and, and it's not at all clear that the Shotans are wrong uh, in, in their beliefs. So that kind of creates this unsteady equilibrium between these three forces with, with the council uh, maintaining a kind of um, uneasy peace and, and life going on as it is. Well, you've hinted at another theme in the story, and maybe, maybe we can conclude with this, although I do also want to ask you about the second book. But uh, the, the theme I'm thinking of is just the idea of truth. You know, it seems to be basically a moving target. Even the word smara seems to yeah. have been deliberately changed or hidden or maybe not deliberately, but certainly lost to time. So yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the importance of truth and, and the importance of memory in this book, too, because looking back in time, the memory, uh, no one knows why the wall was built. But obviously, when it was first built, presumably the first residents must have known. And, and that's gotten lost. And it has allowed the people telling the stories and creating the myths or maintaining them or writing them to control the narrative. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly it, and and the role that memory plays is, is really important because when you have things you can't explain, then the people who can control the explanation for why those things exist have a lot of power in the present day as well, and that's directly a function of the fact that they then control the memory of the world and of the events that led to the way the world is today, and in this story that that world is this city that is mysteriously surrounded by this wall that, that nobody remembers why it was built and what it's for, what its purpose is. And because nobody remembers, you have a whole range of competing explanations, narratives, and, and effectively it is a struggle between different stories about why the wall exists. And whichever story prevails can then allow the storyteller to exert control over what people can do and, and cannot do in present day. So that's the fundamental theme of, of the novel, which is that control over memory allows control over the present and more concrete control over the world as well. And that, of course, is linked to the idea of truth as well, because 
here again, there is, of course, a truth about the wall and, and why it exists. It's just that that truth has been lost in time. And so the story is, in a sense, a search for that truth. And, and the attempts to, to go beyond the wall are a search for that truth in a way that would put it beyond doubt and beyond stories. And, of course, to what extent that happens is something that, that will be revealed in, in the second book. Uh, but that is a, a fundamental theme of, of the book as well. I wonder if there is anything you could say about the second book without giving away the story and the conclusion of the first book. Oh, I mean, so yeah, for sure. So I mean, so all all the characters will will come back and reprise their roles, and then they'll all be back and and uh, in, in similar ways. So this is a duology: there's book one and book two, and and book two will answer pretty much all the questions that are left open at the end of book one. So all the questions about you know the wall and various things that arise in, in book one, there will be answers to them. So it wouldn't be left hanging at the end of book two. So, yeah. When you were writing and finishing the original book, when you were writing in college, did you have the end of the story in mind? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I did, I did. So it was always, I always knew what the ending was. And, and in the beginning, it was, it was one book. But then the story, in a certain sense, became too big for a book. And it's, and, and it's only the fact that where book one ends just seemed the, the most convenient point to, to divide what was one single work into two. And it was always clear to me how, how the story would end. Fantastic. And the second book is coming out when? So September. But, uh, but I think, as you know, the pandemic has hit India quite badly now. And, and when we had the first wave of the pandemic last year, publishing suffered quite badly for obvious reasons and everything went behind by three or four months. Uh, so I don't know if there will be an impact on, on book two. I suspect there might. But right now it's September, and, and I guess it could well happen that the, the second wave, because of it, it will get pushed back by a couple of months. But but right now it's September. Yeah, it's affected publishing the world over. And I'm you know, it's just so sorry every time I read stories about India. It's sad wherever COVID is, but it seems like India is having a particularly difficult and sad time right now. Yeah, it's, it's it's bad right now. But yeah, it, it is quite bad. <laughs> There's no sugarcoating that it can be done of it. So, yeah. Well, I wish you all the best, and I thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about The Wall. Uh, thank you so much for those wonderful questions, and, uh, and thanks for calling me. I've been talking to Guatam Bhatia, author of The Wall, his first novel, and it was published by HarperCollins last year. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and feel free to support the show with a review if you're so inclined. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf, and I edit the show. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is the co-editor. I'll be back soon with a new episode, so stay tuned.